The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Helen, how are you? Hi, Chris. I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm okay. Which part of the world are you in, uh, r- roughly? Yeah, I'm in the Cotswolds, so I'm really lucky. Yeah, it's it's lovely, and it's been a lovely day as well. Really sunny, so beautiful yeah, part of the, a beautiful part of the country. I did a, a 24-hour running race in the Cotswolds. Um, oh, did you? Yeah, you it's uh, well, it's one of those places where you hear Cotswolds and my mind starts thinking hang on is that are we talking like lake district here or something but no it's not it's not actually far from the southwest is it yeah it's quite central isn't it really yeah yeah wasn't around um Broadway Tower was it no it was um oh I'm trying to think the name of it now it was I I usually wear a t-shirt it's got it emblazoned on it and I, I I still can't remember no it was called the Oh, I can't remember now, but it was basically a running race around this beautiful country house. And each lap was about five miles and you just ran as many as you could in 24 hours. And I think um, I managed about 76 miles and then went, took myself off to my tent to sleep. And a few of the guys I was with just ran all through the night and they they ran I think one guy ran 130 miles um it's quite really really great experience but beautiful part of the a part of uh, England it is yeah yeah very very lovely yeah very fortunate yeah so we met through LinkedIn which is um that's becoming more of a valuable platform to me as I do more podcasts because you just get to you you get to meet some really fascinating people and it's kind of there you just see the profile and immediately you can kind of within three sentences get an idea of um where this person's been in their life and of course yours is quite um quite unique and quite exciting I should say yeah, I, I've not been on there very long at all, and um, I kind of had to be persuaded to go on there. Um, and yeah, so I'm glad because it's put us in touch. It wasn't something that I was doing before, you know, until very recently. So yeah, I'm really glad we connected. Yes, thank you. So should we start from the beginning? Then? How how did you join the police force? Yeah, so I, I grew up in the Cotswolds. I was very, very lucky and, uh, you know, I had a, grew up in a little village and it was just it was loving. The older I get, the more thankful I am of, of, of 
that's kind of upbringing really it's it's really helped me along the way and um yeah when i when i was 18 i was i was really sporty and my parents were market gardeners and they didn't want me to become a market gardener i think they could see the way it was the, that industry was going to go so um um I, I decided to join the, the Met Police Cadets, which was all sort of, it was sport and adventure training, community service within different places within London and that, that kind of thing for a year. And it was just, um, just the, the, you know, fantastic, amazing, grounding and you know, brilliant experience really. And you, from there, you just went straight on to Hendon um, to the police training college and trained as a police constable. Police cadets, well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm guessing you don't get to arrest people as a police cadet. No, there was nothing really uh, policey about it at all. You know, it was just literally, um, you know, um, a lot of adventure training, canoeing, climbing mountains, going up high things, you know, to scare you, that kind of thing. Um, you know, a lot of disciplines for uh, it was just yeah fantastic all round grounding but nothing you know around police really other than you were you know obviously going on to be to train as a, a police constable at Hendon which was kind of the other other end of the of the uh, complex does yeah does everybody train at Hendon or is that just for the Met uh that was just yeah that's just the Met yeah the Met police yeah although I think that's really I've lost track a bit, but I think that's really changed. I think a large part of that great big centre's gone now. It's training's changed a lot since I since I went through. Well, I bet the police force has probably changed a lot, isn't it? Because were you subject to sort of sexism and that kind of that that was kind of a big thing, wasn't it? Yeah. I, well, I mean, I joined. So when I went to North London in after I passed my initial training, um, the beginning of 1986, and I think looking back, it, it was you know really quite a good time to join, really, Chris, because there was a lot of um, change in process um, and a, a lot of opportunities for women, really. Um, yeah, there were the old kind of old dinosaurs, but um, it was it was real a real. You know, you could really get on well as a, as a woman, to be honest. Mm. Um, was that probably a few years prior to that? It would have been quite a different, you know, job to have joined. But yeah, I think I look back and think I'm lucky, really. Was that before the? Was it the Stephen Lawrence inquiry? That was a big thing, um, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was before, way before that. It, I I actually went to, to North London just after the Broadwater Farm estate riots in Tottenham where PC Keith Blakelock was hacked to death so it was literally just just a few months after that so it's you know it's a long time ago now um yeah um it was it was a steep learning curve that's for sure you know going going from a little Cotswold village to to that sort of environment yeah that was a big thing wasn't it in 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 our country's history the Broadwater Farm riots um can, should we talk a bit about that for people who probably don't know what we're uh, probably too young to know what we're talking about yeah i mean i wasn't involved in it as i said i was still at, at training school when it was actually taking place but keith blakelock was a local beat officer and he was on a um 
a group of, with a group of officers who were largely sort of just um, what they called home beats, so just like local community bobbies, but had been attached to some fire, fire officers, um, fire, I think they were probably largely firemen, that were trying to put out a fire on the Broadwater Farm estate and they were protecting them because it was, um, and it was, there was a lot of unrest on, on the estate and it was, this riot was, you know, evolving with the local community. And um, so, yeah, they were protecting um, these particular firemen who were trying to put out this, I think it was a fire in, in a stairwell and they came under attack and they got sort of um, ambushed in, in this, this stairwell. I don't know the total accurate ins and outs of it, but um, yeah, and Keith, uh, he got, stabbed multiple times and was killed and I worked with a lot of people that were, were with him you know and he, he suffered mentally or physically through being you know attacked with machetes and axes and things like that and we're lucky to come out of a lot alive really mm. um yeah so it was it was an estate um and there just was a lot of, of unrest and it just evolved into this riot um but I kind of was on the periphery of it really and um you know, just just ended up working with people that were affected by it, really. Yeah, I've kind of got Keith's faces emblazoned in my memory because I can just remember it from the front of every, I mean, it's the front of every newspaper and it, and it kept, his image kept coming up for, well, probably years after that, wasn't it? Was it sort of, was, the Broadwater Farm was predominantly Afro-Caribbean community they were protesting at what they perceived was unfair uh, police, the police targeting them sort of disproportionately. Yeah, basically that's what happened. And, I, I, you know, my memory fails a bit and forgive me for that. Um, but I, th I think that there were certain events that, that happened and it, it led to, the, you know, that um, this unrest, yeah, this unrest between, between, you know, local community and the police and it uh, developed into this unfortunate riot and mm. um, sadly Keith lost his life yeah yeah it was awful because it, it not only that but for as many things that might go on in Britain you, you didn't get police officers dragged off and have their bloody heads chopped off it was just that it it was just a shock for the nation wasn't it and not not and obviously it, for the you know, for the for the police, it must have been um, particularly particularly hard to 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 live through that. Oh yeah, I mean the way yeah he was brutally killed and um, yeah and it I I'm still friends with with people that were with him you know and they they live with the consequences of of that you know that night and the effects of it in different ways you know so um, yeah and. Um, you know, we do, we remember him every year. There's a memorial at Muswell Hill to him. So, and we make sure there's always flowers um, by the memorial. We all chip in. So, you know, um, he's never forgotten. Although I'd never know, you know, I didn't know know him. Mm. You know, it happened before I got to, to Hornsey, but he's never forgotten by everybody. So, it's the least we can do for him, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you for talking about it. So I'm aware it's not like your story. I just it, it was a big thing from my growing up. Mm. Um, I remember the name Winston Silcott, wasn't it? Was the guy that kind of 
if we can say took the rap, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but yeah, and yeah. Was, and then it came out that maybe it wasn't him. I I don't know if right. I I again I I'm not um you know sure of the exact details, but he was one of the people, wasn't he? He was convicted, and then later um his conviction was quashed, and nobody's been ever convicted of of Keith's murder. No, gosh, yeah. awful, awful. Mm. So there you are. How old were you when you started working for the Met? Yeah, so I, I, um, I was nineteen when I was walking around the streets of London. But you know, at that, that time we're talking about now, you know, the, the riots and that time. So yeah, really, really young. Although I didn't feel it at the time, but yeah, nineteen's young, isn't it? Yeah, same as me in Northern Ireland. It's um, walking along the, you know, the main streets of of a, of a major city carrying a, what was effectively a machine gun um bizarre you you go from kind of normality across that line don't you into god this is all it's so real and it you have to grow up fast i well i don't know if you grow up fast i don't know if it make but you certainly um get acclimatized to a side of life that i'm guessing many people just never get to 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 appreciate Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you know, I remember uh, when I sort of first went out on the streets and I, you used to have a, a sort of a, a more experienced officer with you looking after you for a while. And the first person that came up to me and I, I remember feeling terrified, thinking, oh, what is he going to ask me? You know, and all he wanted to know was how to get somewhere. <laughs> uh, it makes me chuckle, really, you know, I was... That, it, but you you really you're absolutely right you soon you soon um adapt don't you to your environment however old however young you are it's a steep learning curve isn't it yeah it steep. definitely is <laughs> and so i guess for our american friends listening we should point out that british police officers traditionally don't carry arms do they other than the the truncheon is that still still the case? Yeah, it still is. I mean, I, I think there's more arms and I, I couldn't tell you the figures more than, you know, when I when I was in. But yeah, basically, it's an un, unarmed police force. Yeah, mm. with just an armed, you know, um, department armed response side. And that's what we would call the armed response unit, is it? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's what I was on, the armed response unit, yeah, yeah. And how did you transition then from, in fact, should we just say what, what were the kind of uh, exciting moments of being a, a Met Police officer for you? Were there any particular incidents that you were involved in that, that you remember? Yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I, I could tell you about sort of the three major sort of... Um, traumatic incidents if you wanted me to Chris that would mm. yeah so um yeah I, I went from being a 19 year old carried on you know quite successfully with my career and uh, um till 1991 so I was about 25 and um I, I, I um attended a call to um a guy called causing a disturbance in Wood Green High Road which is like the main shopping centre and I was driving the van and I got, I got a male colleague with me, John. And it was just really should have been just an ordinary call really. Um, 
I shopped quarters to this guy and um, I pulled up the van and I could see from the description that um, the, the suspect who we'd been called to had just crossed the road. So I jumped out of the van and John went into the shop to find out, you know, why, what had happened and why, why they'd called us, which was pretty normal kind of what you'd, you'd do. And um, another car pulled, police car pulled up behind my van with two, two other colleagues in. And I crossed the road and he got his back to me and he's a really huge, you know, well over six foot tall guy. And I, I said to him something along the lines of what have you been up to or hello, I can't quite, you know, I can't really remember what I was saying, but as the words left my, my mouth, he swung around and this happened so so fast. I, I, I was flying through the air and it was the days before body armor or anything like that. So I was just wearing a, a, just a short sleeved white shirt. And it's funny, women at, at, at that time were issued with these really tiny, short little wooden truncheons that went in their handbags, which was no good to, <laughs> to anybody. So that, that was in, back in my locker in the station. Um, so basically, you know, we were totally unprotected really, but, uh, yeah, and, and I was I was fit and strong and I was flying through the air and he'd stabbed me in the stomach. Um, and he'd got the, the knife sticking out of his fist, so the blade was sticking out of his fist, so he's punching. So I actually thought I'd been punched, but I got up off the floor and thought, I remember thinking, God, that, that really hurts, but I could see him attacking my friend and I just, you know, moved towards towards him to try and stop him, um, you know, stabbing her. Um, but this is all happening so fast. He just was went absolutely, you know, it was just a frenzy of violence. And uh, yeah, and then as I moved forward, he sent me flying backwards again. I landed about twelve feet on on the pavement, and he stabbed me twice more. And um, I, I was incapacitated by that. And um, I remember my, my white shirt just turned red and I just couldn't work it out. It was just, I just, I really just didn't know what had happened. It just happened so fast. And, you know, I was 25, I was very fit and stride a lot of weights and I, I felt invincible, you know, um, and I just had this, I've never felt terror, I like it, you know, I just felt so vulnerable and scared and, um, and basically to cut, cut it all down. He, he stabbed um, four of us, 10 times within about 90 seconds gosh yeah and he was a he, he, he was a mental health patient he was a schizophrenic and um yeah he he just went absolutely um you know he just lost complete control you know when we turned up and uh yeah so thankfully we all survived and um and actually that incident led on to um, John, who I was with, did a lot of research and I helped him a little bit and the body armour and battens were brought in as a direct result of, of that incident. So it just mm. kind of shows you that, um, you know, good can come out of, of this. Yeah, how did, they, how did you um, overwhelm him in the end then? If, if he sounds like he stabbed all of you, someone must have kind of jumped on him in the end or, or, or it's yeah it's a good that's a really good question and, and um 
I've only learned this recently, actually, all these years later, that after he'd stabbed me and um, my friend, so he'd stabbed us, I think, about eight times, he started to calm down a bit. He's, then he stabbed, he stabbed um, one of the other, other officers in the arm. And then John came across from the, the shop that he'd gone into. He'd obviously heard over the radio what was going on. And he came over, he got stabbed in the stomach, but he got help from an off-duty PC who was actually just um, out shopping with his wife. And he helped um, just actually persuade him to hand over the knife. I think he was just calming down, you know, as he stabbed us, he was sort of coming out of whatever episode he, he was going into and, and John managed to persuade him to give him the knife. Okay. So, yeah, um, but that, that all that all happened within about 90 seconds. How soon were you back on the job then after this? Did you, ha I mean, well, let's take it one step at a time. I'm guessing you, what, went into intensive care and they had to keep you alive? Yeah, I mean, we were all really lucky. Um, we, we were all rushed off to different hospitals, went into um, accident emergency and went into theatre. And, um, uh, you know, fortunately, um, he'd, he'd, I say only, he'd got, uh, the blade was fatal, it was a swift army knife. So, I mean, it, it could have been a lot worse, although the, the injuries were quite deep because he was punching with a lot of force. But, um, yeah, so we spent a few days in hospital and it hit all the newspapers and the television and um, went home to be in, you know, mum mum to my 10-month-old son at the time. And it was sort of an era where there was no concept of the sort of stress side of it, you know. Um, and I think the character that, that I was as well, I... I sort of didn't acknowledge that I would have been you know affected by it sort of um, mentally at all um yeah. and of course being a mother adds a, you know that adds a completely different angle on it doesn't it um in that moment yeah. you must be thinking oh my god I might my I might might not see my child again and they might not have a parent yeah I remember clearly lying on the pavement and some amazing passers-by were sort of giving first aid and um and I just yeah that was going through my mind constantly like you know don't die I just this kept sort of repeating this message to myself quietly in my head you know don't die there's Ben at home you know and um yeah just trying to keep my eyes open and um so that was you know I was sort of really focused on him really yeah and mm. yeah and just and I had to, to had that you know I had to go home and, and after the few days in hospital and be a mum and um you know and obviously I would have been affected by by what happened but I didn't really realize at the time if that makes sense Chris mm. no well I mean it does when you're young you just tend to get on with it don't you yeah it's um it's when you get to our well, I'll say my ripe old age, that, you know, well, I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to include you in this, this old person's bracket. <laughs> but, um, it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking now of our friends that were in the Falklands that are only just now, after what's that, 40 years ago, they're only just now going to their GPs 
to say yeah. you know what's wrong with me i've i've felt this way for 40 years something's not yeah. right and of course it's it's the effects of trauma or un, we should say unresolved trauma yeah um yes and, and it's a very misunderstood area and it's a very um unstudied area i guess you could say even though we now realize and you know the people that were shell-shocked in the first world war were they that this was all kind of representative of trauma so um yeah. did you did you have any kind of lasting effects or did was there a moment in your life where it all sort of came to a head um i think at that particular time because there were two other really significant sort of incidents but relatively soon after which i i, I guess i could tell you you know mm. they kind of were the straw that eventually broke the camel's back but at that point um you know I, going back to work was difficult you know putting back on your uniform and um i think you know i was stressed trying to sort of juggle a you know young family and my marriage was going horribly wrong and that ended up in divorce you know there were cracks starting to show but you know you, you as you well know you sort of it, it you have to be fairly resilient to do any of these sort of kind of jobs so you know, it's, it was just in my nature just to get on, get, get on with it, get back to work. And, um, you know, and, and that's what I did. And I started studying for my sergeant's exam. And um, and then in the next sort of major sort of trauma for me was in 1993. And it was just before Christmas. And I was um, again at Wood Green and, and we got a, a coded bomb threat from the IRA that's bombs were going to go off in Wood Green High Road again, exactly the same area where I, I, I'd been stabbed. So um, we all jumped into whatever vehicle we could and just made our way down there as fast as we could, knowing that there were going to be bombs that were going to go off. It was a recognised, you know, code word, which you, you, you'll know all about that. that. And um, it was, yeah, just before Christmas, so there were loads of Christmas shoppers and we just randomly started screaming at people to get out of the shop you know there was no sort of real plan i got no idea where the bombs were or anything and just going from shop to shop and i'd literally gone in in off the pavement into this un, sort of covered walkway and one of them went off and i just remember finding myself on the floor again and um there were pigeons flying everywhere and smoke and it kind of went into slow motion and i got up and i was uninjured Unfortunately, the bombs were, you know, fairly small. They were a couple of pounds, and they put them in the bins. So all the shop fronts had come in, but um, thankfully nobody was killed. And I think about ten people were hit by flying glass. But I was uninjured. I was just like really, if it, it, it frightened because I just didn't know whether another one was going to go off. And so I went back out onto the street and met a colleague of mine, and we just made our way up up, up the street trying to clear the street as best we could and then literally where we'd been where we just moved away from another bomb went off in the bin just where we just moved away from so we were just incredibly lucky um and yeah it was just really frightening really sort of not knowing 
where the next one, if there was another one, unfortunately there wasn't, but it was just total, total chaos. And um, it just another sort of major trauma, though I wasn't physically injured, it was, you know, impacted on top of, you know, the, the, the stabbing really. Was anyone ever sort of brought to justice for, for those, those bombs? Um, I, that's a really good question that I never kind of thought of and I never had, no, I really have no idea. No, no idea at all. Um, but yeah, but a good, good question. They might, might've been, but um, yeah, I really don't know much, much about, you know, that, that side of it, to be honest. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and again, it's sort of an, a, a huge, it had a huge impact on me. I, I carried on studying my science exam and passed that amazingly and carried on being a mum and I was a single mum. And yeah, sort of life was ticking on, but you know, obviously I, it did, you know, did impact on me mentally. Mm. How, how was that coming out? I mean, were, were you drinking or anything like this? No, I didn't drink. I have been, I've been one of, sort of exercise probably excessive exercise at, at points has been, always been my thing I, I went to um I became at one point I was bulimic I started um sort of binge eating and that it did that didn't last for a, a long time and I kind of resolved it myself but um you know and just in, just incredibly stressed really sort of trying to to juggle everything and um and it's and hard isn't it when yeah. you're when you're in a in a, in a in a military in a uniform force, you you're hesitant to seek help because you you've got to be performing all the time, and, and the worry is yeah. that you're going to lose your job, right? Yeah, exactly. And it, it was a, it was an era where you know you just didn't talk about stress was almost a taboo subject. You know, it was a weakness. It was um, it, it just wasn't something. You know, thankfully, I know we've got a lot, lot more we can do, but we've come a long way since then, thankfully. So, and, and my character also was, you know, quite resilient and I just very determined and just really whatever life throwed, threw at me, I kind of um, just tried to bat off, you know, and um, just get on with my job. And, um, and that, and, you know, that's what I did largely. Um, and then the following year, uh, they, the ARVs, which was a very new concept, the armed response vehicles, um, were looking for women and, the, you know, there'd been no, no women at all. And I applied and passed all the, the selection process for that. And I was the first ever mum to join the armed response vehicles. I was about the third woman, but the, the first mum to, to go to um, to go on to that. So that, you know, something now in hindsight that I'm really proud of. Mm. Um, is that is that the SO19 then? Is that the name of Yeah, the... that's right. So it was SO19. So um, it was um, the armed response vehicles, the mobile, unit was it was a, a new concept up back in 1994 and you know to have women on it as well was um you know you know really unusual so are um, we talking helen are we sorry to interrupt but are we talking no, 
I'm assuming what these super fast cars undercover. You're all wearing what civilian clothes, but maybe with a with body armor that says police on it. Am I in the right sort of area? Actually, um, we were uniformed and we, we we wore exactly the same uniform because um, they did at that particular time. Uh, um, they didn't want us to look any different to normal police, but. Um, so we've got white shirts. It, you know, it's quite comical now. If you look at look at you know what all the equipment and kit that they've got in their uniforms now, but we're literally in white shirts and the normal police uniform, um, and in marked um, marked police vehicles. The only sort of difference was that we we were armed. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's come. It's developed an awful lot, hasn't it, since then? Yes. It's funny yeah. when you see these guys rock up to some incident and it's all, I've always found that funny when you see military or police personnel in civilian clothes and they just look almost like so normal. But yeah. They've got, they've got a bloody nine millimeter in their hand. It, it's, there's something like a bit cool about that kind of image. Maybe that's, we need to get away from thinking guns are cool, but um yeah yeah some of those images recently you know the the, te the terrorist attacks where they've been caught on people's um phones and you're quite right you've got like this even you know to make you see this ordinary guy and then yeah it's quite remarkable how it, it you know it's caught on phones isn't it as it's happening which um got one know, guy there he's got a blooming handbag or a man bag they call it, it. I'm, ge I'm, ge yeah. I'm guessing that's because he's got his ammunition and radio in it and he's got skinny jeans on <laughs> it's like yeah yeah i remember uh, yeah i saw that exact i know exactly the one you're talking about yeah i, I watched that yeah and you think that's remarkable really yeah and you're getting insight into something don't you through people's mobile phones that you wouldn't you wouldn't have seen years ago yeah and also i bet it's images that i, I think the powers that be probably don't want them don't don't want them out there do they you know um yeah yeah that's right i suppose every every positive has a negative and every negative has a positive doesn't it yeah yeah exactly mm. yeah yeah so um so yeah there i was i was on the arvs i passed my advanced driving and i was juggling you know ben and my young son and things were becoming sort of in quite you know stressful and but and then I, I it was boxing day 1994 that um was kind of the major last sort of sort of trauma traumatic incident and we got called by the local police at enfield north london to, to go and back them up it was boxing day and they'd been caught a, a domestic incident where our suspected um, he abducted his, his young daughter, a little toddler, in a pushchair from his girlfriend, and he'd got a gun and he'd got a history of of violence with guns, shooting people, armed robbery, that kind of background. So we were called as the armed backup, and um, we were just forming in in a side road. And our plan was to go and get him out of this flat where we knew he was holed up, and hopefully sort of resolve it one way or another hopefully peter that was that that was our plan and um I, I remember being stood at the back of the police vehicle and we were just sort of get 
getting everybody together and um, I was just thinking I better put my body armor on which is in the boot of the car and then I, I just heard one of my colleagues shout it's him and again I can't explain how quickly this sort of erupted and it's faster than I can speak but basically our suspect had come and found us in the street and he got the toddler in the pushchair and um, I remember looking up and everybody kind of was reacting to him moving sort of towards him and I started pulling my gun out of its holster as I was moving forward and um, I just got this glimpse of a gun that he got got a handgun that he took out of his sheepskin coat and he put it in his mouth and again this this is like so quick it's just that seconds and um, then the, his arm was outstretched and he, he let off a shot and I was shot and I knew instantly that, that, that I'd been shot. It was just like um, being hit by a truck, but there was no pain. Um, and I, I just remember this fear, just overwhelming sort of fear going through my body. It was just absolute terror. And um, he, he got shot, shot by my colleagues about eight times, but I, I, I kind of shut down, didn't hear anything other than the shot that hit me. If that, it sounds bizarre, but... Um, and I dropped down to my knee and um, kept sort of kept my gun up. And um, I think once I, I must have realised it was safe, I, I crawled behind the police car and sort of collapsed. And um, that's when the pain kicked in, and you know, um, sort of the adrenaline probably subsided a bit. And yeah, so I, um, yeah, so I, I'd been shot and. Um, you know, I lay there and uh, fortunately we got an ambulance and the air ambulance landed and attended to, to, to the suspect because he'd been injured worse than me. Um, and yeah, no, and I went off to the local hospital and uh, yeah, was treated for the gunshot. And again, I was really, really incredibly lucky to, you know, survive and not be more seriously injured. And are you sure you're not a cat? <laughs> You're down to six now. Yeah. <laughs> what an a what? I mean, let's just to give some kind of background for the for for our friends listening and watching. I, I'm guessing 99.9 percent of police officers, probably higher than that, will go through their whole 20 year career or whatever. They might not even make an arrest. They might not even experience any kind of violent you know incident and you've been hit with like the three biggest ones within such a short space of time i mean it's 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 it really is a bit like an episode of cagney and lacy mixed <laughs> with the bill and and um and i mean the fact that you've survived what makes it all kind of can I say great experience? I mean, not many people get to see that side of life. Probably wasn't wasn't pleasant at the time, obviously. But um, yeah, my God, I mean, this is kind of why people join the forces and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. I might sound crazy, but um, I know you'll know what I mean. You know. So, so much 
good comes out, out from these awful things, even if it's like for me now, you know, almost 30 years later, um, you know, it, it sort of last year my life changed. I kept sort of not really spoken about it. I got, I got, um, just going back, I got discharged. I was very fortunate and got some good treatment, was discharged with post-traumatic stress disorder, and which was really unusual then. Got some really good treatment from Professor Gordon Turnbull, who was like a leading guy, and he started in the RAF. He was a military guy. Um, so I was really lucky, got discharged in 96, and really sort of, unfortunate, I kind of got, um, you know, a positive mindset. I think it's just from my sort of upbringing. Um, and just, although I felt very isolated and lost my sense of sort of purpose, um, I think I fared quite well. And then last year I got asked to, to join um, a group of veterans trying to break the deadlift world record for Rock to Recovery, the charity. Mm. And, um, uh, and and I, I madly said yes. <laughs> and I was 53 and I sort of <clears throat> thought, God, what have I said yes to? And spent months really anxious, training as hard as I could, thinking I was going to completely let the side down and with all these fit, amazing people. And But we, we broke the, the deadlifting world record for rock and raised a lot of money for Rock to Recovery. And I, I bring that in because, it, it, it you know, all these years later, it was kind of pivotal. It, it just, um, I got a bit of help from Rock to Recovery with my anxiety. And, um, and uh, then I went on to this amazing woodland project called Hidden Valley Bushcraft, the Woodland Warrior Programme that helped emergency services and um, military veterans who were struggling. And, so, and I, I went on that for a weekend and they, they, Nick Goldsmith has helped me so much and I ended up doing a podcast and I'm kind of leaping ahead, but it kind of leads me to, you know, I've, I've, I've even spoken in public and started telling my story after all these years, you know, of, um, it's amazing the last year, I've really been helped by military people, it's just mm -hmm. been just remarkable. Uh, just making notes here, we'll come on to Rock to Recovery because I'm doing a bit of stuff for then, Mr. Fox um, and Mr. Sanderson. Yeah, it was Jamie who I actually, um, Jamie and Foxy came down to see us when we, we broke the hour deadlifting world record. And it was Jamie who I actually saw sort of a few weeks after, you know, because I realized I was really anxious and, uh, um, and it was kind of, kind of restricting my life. And he helped me considerably and, but, um, yeah, uh, you know, and it's it's directly from these amazing um, people that are out there in the military that they, you know, Nick Goldsmith said to me around the campfire, you know, you've got an incredible story, Helen, and it's so current, but I, I you know, just hearing that, that little comment and he put me in touch with certain people and it's just the power of this, you know, sort of community out there um it's just been remarkable really are you um, like are you like me do you is it only when other people say blimey you you've lived a life or you've been through a lot that you go mm, well yeah i guess maybe i have i guess what i'm trying to get at is 
I think people like us, we just live our lives. We don't consider what we've been through extreme or abnormal. We just lived our lives. And, um, and you made an interesting point. I was doing a podcast with a chap today and he just came in with that horrible cliche that, that society's been brainwashed with. He said, you've really turned your life around. <laughs> I said, my life was never going in the wrong direction, mate. I've just lived my life. I'm not, you know, unlike a lot of people, I've lived my life. And yeah, sometimes it gets challenging. You get some mental health challenges. You get some physical or illness or, you know, whatever it might be. But to me, that's just all experience. And, I'm, and, and if you changed any of that, you wouldn't be who the person you were. We wouldn't be having this wonderful conversation. I wouldn't be living well it's a dream I live a dream life you know I'm just so fortunate that my life has been the way it's been and I try to get across to people that having challenges isn't a bad you know mm. if you don't have challenges how how do you learn how do you learn empathy how do you learn what another person's going through how do you know what a mental health challenge is if you've never I'm not I'm not saying you have to go through these to you know there's some wonderful you know professionals out there for example that that you know you don't have to have had a drug problem to be a great drug worker right mm. but uh yes let's let's come back to the to to the anxiety and the the woodland warrior stuff because I like a bit of um bushcraft fat brilliant I love um fell in love with it after seeing Ray Mears on the tv right but let's go back so you've been shot you've got what a nine meter bullet in your body i mean i was incredibly lucky because i hadn't got my body armor on and it went through the front of my knee round the side and out the back Whoa. and ended up the bullet ended up in a in a doorway and i've actually got the the lead bit on my wall my my he was my federation rep colin he's a good friend of mine now he um <laughs> he got it he got it framed and wow <laughs> but yeah so i mean i just i was told if it was been a millimeter sort of my knee would have just been shattered so just incredibly lucky it's mad isn't it that in northern ireland the punishment that the 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 paramilitary groups dish out is a kneecapping if you get caught for drugs over there, the, the, you know, let's just say the IRA, for example, will take you behind, a, take you down an alleyway, shoot you through both knees and sometimes your elbows. And the next, you know, within days, these people are up hobbling around Belfast again. On, I've seen it. It's yeah. very, you know, they even got like a routine to do it. Like you don't wear long clothes because you don't want the, you don't want the material going in the wound because that's what's going to cause infection problems. So they rock up wearing a pair of shorts and a, a t-shirt, and it's like if you get caught, you—I guess you either escape the country, which not everyone's in a position to, do, not very few people are in a position to do, or you just go and accept your fate and um, yeah. what that well, must do to you. Oh. Yeah, uh, it's funny, you, you make a really good point there, Chris, about that's exactly what happened to my um, injury because of the, the, the trousers, the woolen trousers that I was wearing. The bullet obviously takes all that gunk 
and all the stuff in through and the local hospital no no fault of that them it just they didn't have any experience they they stitched up the entry and the exit and um it got all infected yeah. and it was the military hospital at Woolwich actually that helped me in the end I, I ended up having to go down there and get it all all sorted out and they I think they irrigated it with acid and stuff and but and yeah and, and but that's an interesting point you make about, about that that's exactly what happened to me but and I got shot in both knees and both elbows <laughs> thankfully oh, oh it's <laughs> it's beyond belief and like I say yeah. Three days later, you'll see this guy on his crutches hobbling down the road, and you're like, "All right, Seamus," you wow. know, and he's like, "Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, yeah." I don't want to go down that route. Whenever I talk about Nor Northern Ireland, I always say something that upsets somebody. You can't really win talking about, uh, you know, sectarian stuff. No. Um, <laughs> let's go let's go back because wood green that's kind of like my um let's say hunting ground that's not the right word but i'm a it's tottenham isn't it wood green yeah yeah the the the, the tube station is like on a sort of big crossroads isn't it like a and then you've got that's the high cool. street and there's a few supermarkets as you go down and a, some nice restaurants and stuff yeah, I mean, I haven't been back there for a long time now, but um, yeah, yeah, that's, um, I, I, I went back a few years ago and it had changed incredibly. In fact, I came out of the tube and looked around and thought, where am I? <laughs> I didn't recognise it, it changed so much. Yes, yeah, I'm the chaplain of a motorcycle club up there. That's how I get to spend a fair bit you know, it's probably the place I go most of all in the UK, other than my home city. Um, oh, wow. I'll have a newfound kind of outlook on it now. I'll be watching every litter bin and thinking, blimey. <laughs> there was a time that would have just got, that could have just gone bang, you know. Yeah, thinking of Helen. <laughs> yes, yes, well, I will be, I will be. So, yeah. so you you're in this armed response unit it's kind of in the infancy of the unit itself um and did you have to do a lot of shooting on the range was there a lot of tactics involved yeah we did a lot of shooting on the range and um training and um uh you know the courses themselves to get in were, were you know hard and um yeah it was tough um I don't think you kind of realise until you look back, and you're probably the same, you know, we, you look back and think, God, wow, it's some of the things you, you pass. But at the time, it was just, yeah, I've done that, you know. It was just kind of, it was, I've just got that kind of personality, I guess, that it was just kind of all, all ordinary. But, yeah, you were constantly training and upgrading, and, um, yeah, I was lucky to do my advanced driving. Um, so yeah, I did, did lots of good things really, and and it's kind of only now I've started talking to uh, talking about it after all these years of not talking about it. You know, you start thinking, yeah, actually it was, you know, I I did do a thing or two, but um, it just be, like you said earlier, it just becomes sort of part just normal in a way, and I think that's partly why I I didn't really 
ever talk about it because um, you know, it was only sort of getting getting in contact with with Nick Goldsmith at, at Hidden Valley Bushcraft that he sort of you know sort of started believing in my story really. Mm. Let's go back to the the weapons then because again it, it, the unit's in its infancy now you see police officers in London got all kind of fantastic weaponry looks like Swiss made MP5s or whatever they're called or I'm, I know somebody can put in the comments what the weapons are now. I, I have no idea. I don't pretend I do, but, you know, they, they look almost like space age, some of these things. But back then, what was it? Were you armed with nine millimeters? Yeah, I know. You look. I look at their kit now. And I just haven't got a clue. It's just it's incredible. Um, yeah. So we we got the Glock. We were just that we were just we were the I remember we. We got the Glock, but they were still using, I think it was the, the Browning, I think, quite as a sidearm, I think. And I just joined at that kind of changeover to the Glock. And then the MP5, yeah, which we, we used to have to keep in the, locked in, it's supposed to be locked in the safe in, in the back of the car. Um, and we didn't even wear our body armor all the time. It was, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, change beyond recognition really now mm. you know and rightly so it was but I guess it was just in it's it's early it was an early concept you know it's only just sort of taken off so and I, I remember there was an argument about um because we wanted to get rid of these white shirts because they were sort of we said they're not really very practical and um, and they just didn't want us to have um, like a dark blue shirt because they just wanted us to look like ordinary police officers at the time but obviously we've gone way you know from that haven't we now yeah my to give you my sort of take on the people with guns thing as i said earlier you know it's always a bit of a dodgy wicket giving a 19 year old a machine gun because you don't really know a lot when you're 19 and you you, you certainly don't own your own mind at that age or, or certainly a lot of other people have got dibs on your your mind but in the military, it does attract a whole cross spectrum of society, like I'm sure the police does, you know. And in that broad spectrum, you get your fair share of bloody idiots and sociopaths. And I'm not saying they make it any kind of majority or anything, but you, there's certainly a sprinkling. And we'd have this situation where our kind of officers and, and the hierarchy would, they would just make bloody mountains out of molehills to kind of exercise our job. So I'll give you a, like one example, not, not related to um, Northern Ireland. Just this was back when, when I was at a barracks uh, in the UK and like a mentally unwell person ran past our main gate and he had an action man gun it was about that big mm. clearly a toy plastic gun right mm. the freaking military blew that into a full-on terrorist incident with the security state of the camp going up you know everyone told rather than just have your your ammunition in 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 your pouch it, you clipped it onto your 
you know, onto your weapon. We weren't quite at the make, make ready stage. And it's, I would just look at these guys go, you bloody idiots. Yeah. It's a mentally unwell chap. Anyone could have seen that and gone, you know, I'm not saying it's a clever idea. There was no threat whatsoever to the camp security, whichever way you tried to spin it, except maybe mm. if this guy decided to punch punch the guy on the gate, the, the security on the gate, that that was probably about as dangerous as it possibly could have got. Yeah. And, and the other side of the coin is, then you had these guys going, yeah, if that's me, I'd have fucking shot him. Right, okay, you'd have shot a mentally unwell person for doing, like, absolutely nothing. Mm. Right, you big man, you. You very big man. And I wonder if, did you have any kind of, um, can you relate to this kind of thing that I'm trying to describe during your service? Yeah, completely. And I think you you touched on it, Chris. It's your, it's your cross-section of society, isn't it? So I think, yeah, just all those characters uh, are there, just the odd random one, you know, in, 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 in the police that was then, you know, because you are taking from a cross-section of society, aren't you? And generally, the, the vast majority were just, you know, that I, and I only talk, my own experiences were amazing. I was really lucky I worked with amazing people who treated me just, you know, as, as Helen, you know, I wasn't treated badly because I was a woman, of, you know, the opposite really. Um, had a lot of opportunity, but yeah, you do, you get, you do, you get the odds. You know, I remember there was an inspector who, who uh, not on the firearm, this is just on, on just normal, um, normal policing and, he, he just got a reputation. You just really didn't want him to turn up at any major incident because you you, you knew you wanted to keep him out of the loop because if he, <laughs> you know, if he turned up, he'd make make something, you know, awful out of it, the situation, and we could deal with it better, you know. So you, you do, you just get those kind of characters that, you know. So I, I do, I can relate to what you said, definitely. There's been a couple of incidents, haven't there, in recent years where in a completely in what well, I guess it depends what your definition of completely innocent is but there certainly was that case of the was it like a Venezuelan guy running through the the tube station oh, and the, the yeah, armed response that... unit had been briefed that there was going to be a, I don't like the word terrorist but that's what they you know what they would have said mm. and so they put two and two together, come up with five, and they gunned this guy down before he even had a chance to find out that, no, he's a completely innocent man. It was just running for his train. Mm. And then they, they, you get the old chestnut, oh, we thought he was going to pull a gun, or he he moved, he put his arm in it. All, just all those things that when you've been on the inside, you know are just standard get-out-of-jail-free things that... that that you you know that you can say um and i just think he's one of those guys that i'm just i've been describing that that just wants to get a kill just wants wants to discharge his firearm to say i've done my job and um yeah hot and then of course in america we're seeing this these shootings far more 
on a far more regular basis because obviously they've got more people over there and they've got more armed way more armed police officers and um yeah i'm not trying to say anything i just it's just while we're talking of the 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 job it's um it's not without its problems is it no it's not and you know i I still think um even with with the failings of the police service in this country you know we have got one of you know the best police services in the world um um yeah and i guess you know these unfortunate incidents do do happen don't they um but um yeah i think you know from my time i, I you know I, I worked with a lot of very very good people and I sort of only can sort of comment on that that side of it really mm. I should point out the other side of the coin, obviously, and yes, you're quite right. We've got, well, let's just say the best police force in 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 the world, to my knowledge, and I've I've seen a lot of the world. Um, I've also seen incidents where the police have done every single thing they can to de-escalate a potentially lethal situation. So it's someone with a knife, and they're distraught. They're you know, displaying all the signs of trauma or, or mental unwellness or, and, and whereas in maybe, you know, our Atlant- cross Atlantic brother and sisters would just pull their gun out and shoot them straight away. The British police officer, like put the knife down and then they're making everybody step back, knowing that, you know, the more they sort of approach this person, the more it's going to trigger their, their anxiety and the more chance there is of it all going wrong and they're just sort of stepping back and giving this person every single opportunity. And I've seen people comment on this video from, you know, our uh, Americans going, blooming hell, those, those police officers showed restraint. It's like, no, they didn't show restraint. They showed empathy, kindness, professionalism, you know, everything we like to pride ourselves on uh, being, being British. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, all that, you know, that that is how they're trained and how, how generally we, we police in this country. Um, and, you know, again, you know, unfortunate incidents do happen. But generally, you know, I think um, we've got we've got an amazing police force, police service. Yes. Thank you to the British police force. Yeah. How long, Helen, were you in that unit for? Yeah, so I I hadn't joined that so under a year that I was in the firearms before I got shot. So it was you know I hadn't been with them all that long. So um, uh, you know in that you know that and that it ended my career. So a career that you know I thought I'd do thirty years. So um, but yeah, like we said earlier, you know everything does happen for a reason, doesn't it? And um you know now i look at um, i'm patron of the woodland warrior program and at hidden valley bushcraft you know and, and just none of it that would happen i wouldn't be talking to you any of these if that hadn't happened so like you said earlier you've just got a it's part of ups and downs of life isn't it and makes us who we are it, it, yes it is let's talk let's talk about that Helen the Woodland Warrior program 
Am I understanding this right? Is this kind of therapy through bushcraft? Yes, it, totally. Um, and, I, and I think they've just got funding. Well, they have just got funding for all key workers as well, which is going to be amazing. Once we've um, come through the, you know, the current restrictions around the COVID-19 virus, they're, they're going to be taking, um, key workers can go there as well and have a day in the woodland. And it's just to de-stress, you know, recuperate and all, all those things, just doing bushcraft cooking and... It's just in such a peaceful environment that's just um, just so therapeutic. And I was there with some military guys, and although we hadn't got the same traumas, we just got a lot in common. And it's just um, just been, it's literally been a life changing experience. Like I spoke about earlier, that you know the support and that the people that Nick has put me in touch with, and um, yeah, it's just just so thankful that I went there it's you know and I'm going back to help um with the woodland warrior weekends for emergency services and um yeah we, we even went to the endeavor fund awards they, uh, Nick was um, nominated for an, um the top award there you know just I just sat there I couldn't believe I was there it's just just shows you you know how your life can change in such a short period of time and I just you know hope by talking out it, it helps it help somewhere um someone and excuse me <laughs> sorry you never saw that on wogan <laughs> so we should explain for people who don't know what bushcraft i'm sure m most people these days know what bushcraft is but it's it's kind of um your skills isn't it to, that we would have had back when we lived in the nature yeah, I mean, we, we did, um, I mean, Nick's extremely knowledgeable and um, he's done some amazing courses, but yeah, we did wood carving and, um, you know, different bits of foraging, he pointed out stuff and it's just all really low key, um, but just takes you away from the, you know, the modern sort of busyness and stress mm. that we all get caught up in and you literally just have to, you just stop and you know, you uh, uh, sleep in the woods, you have a you sort of camp bed, you build your, t your, your tarp all in and your, your shelter and it's all part of the weekend and cook. And yeah, it's just amazing how, what a powerful process it is in just such a simple, and a, such a simple concept, really. Mm. Something very therapeutic about just a fire, isn't there? Yeah. Watching the yeah. flames and chatting and, have you ever tried to make fire? We yeah we we did all that yeah we did it with um, with friction and uh, yeah that was that's really exciting when you it actually works. <laughs> I've never managed yeah. to do it. I've tried it a few times. Um, I think you can buy kits on eBay. It, they give you the right types of wood because it that a lot of it is whether you got the right type of wood. Otherwise, you got the bowdra and you can be going for hours and you just <laughs> basically screw your hands up and don't get much. Um, progress but it's fascinating when you watch people that know how to do it oh yeah yeah it would be it'd be i'm sure you'd love it love it there and, and nick's just an amazing character and um yeah it's just that i think you know once we we come out of these restrictions around the, the, the virus and that you know they're going to be really really busy, busy there mm. what well, did you say nick was the proprietor 
Yeah, Nick's, Nick Goldsmith and his wife, Louise. So Nick was a Royal Marine um, who suffered his own mental health through, through the traumas of you know, what he experienced. And Louise is, um, she just, just finished with the police. They, um, and they also run a woodland ki kindergarten in the woods as well. So um, yeah, it's Hidden Valley Bushcraft. Well, it might be, um, my producer and I were always looking for constructive documentaries to make I suppose you could say and I think a, a bushcraft weekend would be a great thing to go and film and, uh, oh. and, and especially to get the story of the, the you know the the, the, the the therapy kind of side of things and how that's yeah. helping people. It'd be amazing because his backstory is that he he um he, he bought this bit of woodland basically just to cope with his own mental health and his struggle I mean it would be just an amazing story mm. um you know, for you guys, because, um, you know, he's turned that being on the brink. Um, so this just between the two of them, this amazing thing, that, um, you know, they've got funding from the Endeavour Fund Award from Prince Harry for veterans. And um, it's just, it is, yeah, it's an amazing story, really. And yeah, it, well, it, it, well, it's perhaps, perhaps you can have, have a word with him on my behalf, because... Um, I would put it on my to-do list, but my to-do list is so oh. ridiculously huge now. There's no way I can do uh, all the things on there. But yeah, by all means, have a word with Nick and say that maybe we could do something together. And my producer's a Netflix director, so he knows all the tricks of the trade and how to put a good yep. documentary together. I think that would be great. We could yep. do like a sort of a documentary, a practical documentary podcast. and. I'm always up for, um, you know, sleeping out under canvas and doing a bit of bushcraft. Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. And I know they've got some exciting things coming up as well. So, so um, yeah, maybe I could, I think Louise does all the sort of admin -y stuff. So maybe I could sort of put your name, uh, you know, to her and. Um, yeah, by all means, put them in touch and it'd be great. Yeah. It'd be great, yeah. great to have a chat. Right. So. Helen, we'll put the, all any details you want to put below the YouTube video. Let me know. So you're, if you want people to contact you via LinkedIn or whatever, whatever it is, or if you've got social media, um, we'll put that below. If anyone wants you to come and speak, they can again get hold of you. How is that going? Is is it's must be quite um, well. I mean, I know person it's. It's not the easiest things, is it, to get up in front of people and talk? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I never in a million years imagined. And Nick said, he, I remember saying around the campfire, you'll be you're public, speak, public speaking one day. I was like, no way. And I, you know, I was terrified beforehand, but um, so proud that I did it. And it was just taking off, really. And then, of course, you know, we've had this with, with the virus, so we sort of, everything's on hold, isn't it? But... Um, yeah, I'm the same. I'm looking at my cal my wall calendar there, and uh, all my speeches <laughs> they're, they're all they're not going to happen now. And uh, um, oh, hey ho! I'm sure I'm sure they'll be rebooked at some later. Um, yeah, I was looking forward to my free night, my free night in the hotel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> going to use all the room service and. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'll say, yeah, because they, they put you up for a night in a hotel before you do your talk. I'm going to 
I'm going to use all the room service and I'm going to drink all the mini bar and <laughs> run a oh, hot bath. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. God oh, bless you. <laughs> so, Helen, you've been absolutely wonderful to speak to. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I wish you all the best with everything. Congratulations on your, is fortitude the right word? I'm not, for a writer, I'm not the best for English, but, you know, just for setting such a great example and, and for living such an amazing, an amazing life. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. I'm, thank you for getting in touch with me and letting me talk to you. And yeah, it's just been lovely, really genuinely lovely to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Stay on the line, Helen. I'll just say goodbye to our friends at home. Friends at home, thank you ever so much for watching another edition of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. If you could like and subscribe, if you, if you did like, if you didn't, don't. And uh, big love to you and your families. Thank you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.